books are vehicles for humanity. And by obstructing them, we're cutting off a population who needs access to more humanity from that very source. Welcome to Bordier, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking with James Taker and Robert Pollock of PEN America about censorship in prison. I think that the conversation does a good job of introducing itself, so without further ado, here it is. I thought we could start off by having you guys paint a picture of what censorship in prison looks like. Well, we say that the system of book restrictions um, on a statewide level when it comes to individual institutions and when it comes to individual um, officers, prison officers who have um, wide discretion to uh, restrict books, if you put that all together, that it comprises the largest book ban in the United States today. Um, as uh, a free expression organization, PEN America is a literature and free expression organization. Um, we've looked historically a lot at the issue of book banning in American schools, book banning in American local libraries. But when one thinks about the fact that over 2 million adult Americans are in prison, uh, a number that encapsulates approximately 1.3 million in state prisons and, and hundreds of thousands of others in, in federal prisons and in local jails, um, we're talking about a book ban uh, a series of book bans that uh, affect what almost 1% of the American population can read. So you know, almost one out of every 100 Americans um, has their reading material or access thereof uh, restricted in significant ways. And what are those ways? So how, how, how is reading material restricted? Sure. Well, I would probably break it down um, into a few subcategories. Um, number one is the idea that, uh, that prisons are able to impose essentially content-based bans, um, which is to say they, they analyze the content of the book, and if it runs afoul of one of several um, broadly defined categories, such as, uh, say, uh, encouraging violence or, um, or uh, encouraging kind of racial animus or encouraging um, negative views towards authority, these are reasons why a book may be um, may be blocked or restricted, um, and a lot of that falls to the discretion of uh, individual officers within the correction facility. So a lot of times these restrictions play out in the mailroom. If a prisoner is uh, is being sent a book, that they'll be played out there. Um, you also have uh, a series of, and we're seeing this increasingly. It's certainly been a problem for a long time. Um, so I don't want to describe it as a new issue, but where we are seeing it, I would say, increasingly, which is the idea of facially neutral bans on all outside books or um, bans on books as packages. So um, things like approved vendor programs that on the surface or when you, you read it quickly, they sound not only neutral, but they sound like they have very little to do with the practice of book banning. But the idea that you can only that a prisoner can only purchase a book from an approved outside vendor um, to receive the book directly uh, is something that affects that affects um, prisoners' ability to receive books and kind of channels it down to a very narrow subcategory of all the books available. And how is that? Is that because the approved distributors 
only is it a function of access? Like, do, you, do they have to pay money through approved distributors, or is it that the approved distributors only have like a certain library? All of the above. Okay. Um, obviously, uh, on a state by state level, this will play out differently, and some states are uh, attempting to make this happen. And um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons also attempted a pilot program uh, with this recently. So uh, it's not just a, a state thing, it's also played out on a federal level. But um, partially, I mean, one category of the issue is indeed the fact that the approved vendors, um, even if they have a very expansive catalog of books to choose from, we're talking about distilling all the world's literature into suddenly um, a few hundred or a few thousand um, options. Um, you have the fact that Certainly some of these proposals add extra costs uh, to the prisoner's um, book purchases. And that includes things such as secure vendor programs might make a prisoner pay for a book that's already in the public domain. Uh, it, will remove, it can remove access to donated books or books that are sent directly by a friend or by a family member. So um, it, blocks, uh, it blocks book access in a, in a variety of ways that are inherently deeply problematic. So what's the rationale for the secured vendor program? I guess the main rationale is almost, it, it falls under the large category that uh, James refers to as penological interest, mm -hmm. um, which includes security concerns and basically it's an element of control. If I can control the vendor and hold them accountable for things that come in through their source. For the prison administrator, it, it's a sort of a, a no-brainer. I get to worry about one source of incoming material versus the world of sources, um, which is a lot harder to hold accountable. Yeah, yeah it's, it's often described, I mean, it's most commonly described as an anti-contraband measure um, with the idea that contraband, including drugs, can be brought in through books. It, uh, however, it inherently kind of plays into uh, what we see as a really negative aspect of the prison industrial complex, which is that all the sudden, um, all the sudden, uh, vendors basically are, are chosen to have access to a. It's a morbid pun. Please excuse me, but it helps illustrate the 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 uh, the truth of it. They're they're they now have a, ca a captive market segment. I was wondering if that was where you I was, were going. I really, yeah. I was torn, but uh, it's uh, it's very morbid, but it's, it's also very it's literal. It's an, and it's instructive. I mean, we're talking about the fact that prisoners are essentially forced to buy from these companies, um, and that obviously uh, slides from a rationale of anti-contraband to um, something that really plays into the prison industrial complex in a way that's uh, almost a seamless organic slippery slope. Right, I guess it's like uh, other services that we would sort of take for granted, other forms of expression that are now, people now have to pay to email their families or they pay exorbitant amount of some money to call their families, et cetera, and it seems like that it's, that's, it's sort of fitting into that trend as well. I think it's very similar, absolutely. I think. It is really instructive to evaluate this um, as part of uh, as part of that larger trend, which you you just mentioned, which is this idea that we are um, that prisons are kind of outsourcing and privatizing a lot of the aspects of prisoners' communication with the outside world. So, can you talk a little bit about book donation programs or um, alternatives and the ways that um, 
books and literature form a connection to the world outside of prison? Um, uh, uh, last year, we uh, Penn runs a national prison writing program. So we have uh, writers from all over the country who write in drama, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, um, and they submit to our annual contest, which has been running for 30 years uh, in those categories, and we award cash prizes to these writers. And we polled our writers to ask them about their favorite books and what books have impacted them and how. So we got back a lot of feedback from uh, writers who participated in our program, um, many of who exchanged letters as part of our mentorship program with professional writers and working writers um, as part of an ongoing mentorship. And their feedback was astounding, not just in the breadth of books that you uh, maybe uh, someone not familiar with prisoners may have an idea of what prisoners might want to read, mm -hmm. but it wasn't just, um, you know, Tom Clancy and James Patterson or Nora Roberts. You know, it was like this really interesting um, cross section. Uh, and the other part of your question is like, how do books impact their lives? I think it's best told in their own words. Kind of, I have some uh, few anecdotal statements that we received from that. But to summarize what they expressed is that the books do everything that we know books do. They, they open our minds to insights and perspectives of people outside of our own experience. And, I, you know, having spent some time in confined quarters, I can attest to, you know, even a kid can, you know, who's grounded can find solace in a book. And be able to visualize and put themselves into the, the real world. I think it's even more important in, in a place that engenders so much bitterness to be able to find glimmers of hope and a, a sort of alleviation from the loneliness that seeps into the condition, knowing that I'm not the only one who suffered. You know, if I'm reading Dostoevsky, which someone <laughs> mentioned earlier, or, you know, about the struggles of a, of a little girl hiding in an attic, you know, under oppression. So it, it's, it's, um, books are vehicles for humanity. And by obstructing them, we're cutting off a population who needs access to more humanity from that very source. So, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I was, if I may add a little bit more um, on that. You know, the research really clearly indicates how things like literacy levels, education levels, et cetera, are linked to rehabilitation or, and are, are inversely correlated with um, recidivism, you know, which is to say that the more kind of access to ed education, literature, et cetera, that you receive, um, that it has a positive rehabilitative effect. And one of the most kind of frustrating things about the discourse we have around book restrictions in American prisons nowadays and today is that it is a discourse that's predicated on a tension between security um, in the prison and the, the prisoner's rights. And often what's forgotten or given kind of second fiddle in that story is the aspect of how literature can be um, a rehabilitative tool. Uh, and we often miss that in our, in our conversations about a lot of these exact policies. I feel like we're playing a little ping pong here, so I apologize. <laughs> no, no, um, there's often a lot of conflict about the very concept of rehabilitation. The prison 
circles through act from academia to activists and beyond have challenged the notion of what we mean by rehabilitation and um, habilitation or even the concept of that um, people can change or deserve second chances. So in some cases it can be patronizing, in other cases it could be downright skeptical. Mm. So it, it's, it's a fraught concept, but I do know, like for a fact, regardless of what the perspective is on rehabilitation or throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm. um, access to the world of letters and the communities that that creates, it's, it's rarely ever a bad thing. Even going down a path of exploration in the book, you're gonna get a lot more than just what you're looking for. So I think the, the, the question of rehabilitation, I just wanna caveat that word. Yeah, it, that's useful, thanks. It absolutely does change people's mm. minds to read in a good way. Yeah, I mean, certainly, with that point, I think we absolutely have to ground our advocacy for the right to read in American prisons in a, in a moral argument, um, that this is just, this has to do with our rights as, as humans, this has to do with our rights as Americans, and by which I'm referencing the Constitution and the First Amendment in particular, and so certainly that's where we have to ground our argument. Um, and it's not just about kind of the utility uh, of uh, of, of, of rehabilitation, but also something that we need to afford um, people in prisons by virtue of their humanity. You mentioned uh, anecdotes, or what were you talking about there? Uh, I, we, maybe I'll just read from one, if that's okay. That'd be great. Um, this is from one of our, our writers named Matthew in um, Washington State. So he says, thank you for the opportunity to send in a testimonial. I've been very grateful to participate in the prison writing program. It's awesome. And not in a hot dogs are awesome kind of way, Eddie Izzard, but more traditionally awesome. Anyway, I'll get to the blurb. It's about Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. My best friend got me a book for Christmas, my fourth nativity behind bars called Bird by Bird. I trust every book choice this friend has made for me. In high school, there was Poisonwood Bible and Invisible Man. Since I've been down, she's kept the books coming, and the best yet has been Bird by Bird. With this book, I've resumed devaluing the significance of dog-earing pages. I wore out a whole pencil underlining passages. I've burst out in laughter. I've teared up reading it. I've gone hyperbolic in cliches. Anne Lamott starts getting me to identify as the writer I am not as the fantastical author I daydream of becoming. In Bird by Bird, I've found practical and abstract advice expertly delivered. I had a source bias going in, fine. This book is still a treasured resource, and in it, I found a voice that spoke to me, not as author to person, but as writer to writer. Anne Lamott's own words, nearly at the beginning, tell the story not only of the book, but maybe of all books. There is a door we all want to work through, and writing can help you find it and open it. Wow. Matthew from Washington. So the prompt was to ask people to send you Yeah, their we thoughts asked them book? Uh, book, books that they love. We have a list of books that um, writers, uh, writers in our program loved and thought were great. So Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, In Search of Excellence, 
there's a long list here of amazing Chuck Palahniuk, you know, the thesaurus, the almanac, which in some cases aren't allowed. Um, dictionaries, dictionaries in foreign languages aren't allowed in many cases across the country. Okay. Fahrenheit 451, playwriting in progress. It goes on and on and on. Um, Maybe can we do one more? Sure, let me see. I didn't pre-scan these, so you're getting it. Um, the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, which also isn't allowed in some prisons. I think, yeah. Um, I forget the translator's name, whose version I found so profound, but the right translator is extremely important. I also forget how many psalms or whatever you call Lao Tzu's cone-like passages it has, but the book uses a gently teasing poetic stream of challenges to completely upend your sense of self. In one... He asks a male-dominated world, could you live in the female part? On leadership, he writes, the wise leader leads from behind. He lays himself down as the road upon which his people will find their own destiny. And when they achieve their goals and celebrate themselves, the wise leader remains silent, happy in the knowledge that he has fulfilled his promises. It doesn't get any richer than that. Hmm. Who's that from? That's from an... Alan Wyman in Illinois. I feel like we've laid um, some of the groundwork for why why this work is important and what the kind of facially neutral limitations on um, access to books are. But it sounds like a lot of the book banning that's being done is at a, an individual level, like specific books are being singled out, et cetera. So can you give me some examples of, of books that are getting censored? Yeah, a, a couple that I've spoken about recently, you know, in, in North Carolina, the autobiography of Maya Angelou is blocked, and that's really kind of North Carolina's favorite daughter. Texas is an example that comes up a lot. Um, our understanding is it's approximately 15,000 books on the banned books list in Texas, uh, which is uh, pretty significant. Um, you know, you have books that are banned. This is kind of one of the most oft-cited examples that you have bans, uh, books that are banned by James Baldwin, by Langston Hughes, Oral Histories of Civil Rights Leader, whereas Waldo is blocked. Um, and people actually point out um, that in Texas, Mein Kampf and books by David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of um, the Ku Klux Klan, are instead allowed, um, which is a very strange juxtaposition that we can get into. Um, Washington State... No books that are written in or teaching a foreign language. Um, photo histories of the Vietnam War have been rejected for containing nudity. Uh, so that's just a few examples um, that we, we can get further into. In Arizona, another example is that the illustrated Holy Bible is blocked uh, for um, graphic violence. And that's something that I think s strikes people as somewhat irrational to put it mildly. All right, let's, yeah, let's put a pin in the word irrational because I definitely want to get to that. Um, but, but even before we get there, uh, what, is, um, what is dangerous about a book? I, we talked about what is sort of liberating to the mind or what's important to everyone's humanity in books, but what's dangerous about books and why are they getting banned? I'll start with an example that I shared with James. Like, literally, I walked over to James' desk, and I was like, James, you got to take a look at this. Oh, yeah. So we, I got a letter from one of our mentees, and the book that he had ordered had been rejected uh, by the facility um, and sent over to us, and it had a little pink slip wrapped around it with the 
which was a form filled out by the facility, and it was very unclear why it was rejected. Um, it was scribbled on that on page 147, yeah. 149, was a reference to construction of a makeshift um, weapon. Um, so it's a book about women's prison, and the person was reading it to understand, because they're writing about the subject. Um, it's a, well, notable book, New York Times, um, etc. So the, we turn to the page in question, and on that page it refers to the practice of um, filing a toothbrush down to make it into a weapon. So that one passage out of a 300-page book, according to prison authorities in their own writing, made it dangerous, um, despite the fact that it's a well-known practice pretty much day one right. in prison. You get the what what before we go to prison because we're indoctrinated with prison culture um, as part of you know, popular culture. So that was one example of how a book could be dangerous or seen as dangerous. The other examples... James could probably give. Yeah, I can go into a a few. So another thing that I think we can discuss with the idea of what makes a book dangerous is um, a couple of the reasons that a book may be blocked that uh, I and others consider that we I think we think are more subjective, more inherently problematic than some other categories. All all of these categories. one of our biggest concerns is that they're simply so subjective and they're applied so over broadly. You know, when you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And when your job is to see things only through the prism of safety, um, you, you will always err over much on the side of safety as opposed to balancing it in, in a thoughtful way with, um, with uh, other concerns such as um, First Amendment concerns and, and the right to read in Americans' prisons. Um, that's not intended to be an insult to anyone, but that's just looking at the institution and what it incentivizes and where the biases are. Um, and a couple of categories are where books are blocked for kind of encouraging racial animus or where they're blocked for encouraging hostile attitudes towards authority. And these really shade almost immediately into very subjective decisions about the narratives um, on society, the narratives on societal fault lines, the narratives on our country that um, prisons will kind of allow to be told. Some of the biggest examples are things like slavery by another name and um, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which are um, slavery by another name uh, was previously blocked in Alabama. The new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander was um, blocked in individual institutions in New Jersey and Florida and North Carolina and I believe Michigan, although a lot of those have been overturned. Those are two different books that are talking about the issue uh, of of race, um, the issue um, uh, eventually about mass incarceration and about our incarceration practices and the racial elements thereof. And they have been blocked for supposedly encouraging um, racial animus. And it's really difficult to square the idea of uh, a thoughtful, fact-based conversation, which these books attempt to stimulate, about the way that race plays a factor in our mass incarceration policies, it, it's really difficult to see that as, um, as stirring up some kind of racial extremism or racial animus. Instead, it seems that the 
idea that these books are inherently critical of the racial aspects of our mass incarceration system is, is what's being blocked. And the prisoners who are affected by these very policies um, often are uh, there are attempts to block them from reading it. You know, I have a quote uh, by the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center, Paul White. And the Human Rights Defense Center is a, a, um, a human, uh, civil rights and human rights NGO that publishes prison legal news, which is one of the most blocked um, periodical publications in American prisons. And he writes that when you look at the banned book list and specifically the stuff that's being allowed, there's a definite bias towards violent armed white supremacy and the censorship of anything that questions the existing religious or political status quo. Now, that's obviously a very searing indictment, but I, I happen to agree with it when we look at cases such as the one I mentioned, where in Texas, um, the, the off-sided example is that you have these books by white supremacists that are allowed, whereas books by, that by civil rights activists are not. And it's very difficult to see racial animus in one and not in another unless we accept the contention that there's a lot of painful, troubling biases that are um, illuminating prison authorities' way forward on this issue. These categories of bases for prohibition or censorship, like racial animus or um, instigating negative views towards authority, who is coming up with those? Uh, I think the, the short answer is... Um, prison authorities that are using it. Um, so there's no like list, there's no Supreme Court case out there that says like the following six categories are legitimate No, um, that's correct to, the, to my understanding. And you want to jump in? Yeah, I, was, I, I learned a lot from James on this, just with his work on, on book banning. Um, mostly is a perspective of the fragmentation of the U.S. penal system when it comes to implementing censorship policies. So one of the things he identified is the fact that there are federal policies, there are state policies that are separate from that, there are individual facility policies, and as part of the typology that he's developed, he's identified this tiered structure of state, of federal state facility-based uh, individual um, mailroom officer level mm-hmm. based on their interpretation of the rules, which is often cultural and or individual uh, arbitrary interpretation. So at all of those levels, um, someone can just not like the new Jim Crow in the mailroom. And that becomes the policy because they tack on the wall, don't let the new Jim Crow in. Got it. Um, also at the facility level, it could enter a ban list, or at the state, it could. Some states have the whole ban book list, and the process isn't the same from state to state. Um, so, and I don't know of any governing body that regulates the list. The interesting thing about prison is that what James has identified through the legal cases is that prisons are given a wide, much wider discretion to set policy and dictate the rights of incarcerated persons in that is afforded to no other people. And I hope I'm not pre-stealing your thunder, but <laughs> this is like sort of uh, applies to that specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with all of that. Um, and the relevant kind of test for this from a um, juridical standard is the, um, the Turner v. Safley test, which was a 1987 case. And it's the default standard for prisoners' First Amendment claims. So when or if uh, when a prison regulation is impinging on inmates' constitutional rights. Okay. It's a four-part test. The first 
prong, which is arguably the most significant prong, um, because subsequently the courts have put more and more emphasis on the first of these four prongs, thereby watering down what was already kind of a watered-down test. The first part is whether it's reasonably related to legitimate penological interests. And any lawyer listening to this will recognize that that's about the lowest bar that you can really set. It's very deferential to the judgment of the prison administrators. The second part is whether the inmates have alternative means of exercising their right. The third is whether accommodating the constitutional right would, what effect it would have on the prison at large. And then the fourth is whether there's, um, uh, you know, basically whether there's an alternative to the regulation that would accommodate that right, um, which is kind of a, an evaluation of the necessity of it. So I would argue that that's already kind of a, a low hurdle to jump. And since Turner, the courts have increasingly put an emphasis on the first prong, um, which is the rational relation to legitimate penological interests, which is A, a very easy hurdle for prison administrators to jump over. And B, uh, there's some jurisprudence saying that, well, prison safety is a compelling interest anyway. So even if there were a higher standard of review, that it would often pass that anyway. So there's a really, it's a really uphill battle for prisoners to assert their First Amendment rights, given the significant deference that judges give to the prison administrators. Now, I think Thurgood Marshall wrote about this best in a decision called Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Union, and this was a freedom of association um, decision. This was in 1977. And since then, I believe that the issues he's pinpointed has just become more and more the case. You know, he wrote, in relation to this case, that deference is given to administrators in a variety of situations, school administrators, city administrators, and then he says, yet in no First Amendment case of which I'm aware has the court deferred to the judgment of such officials simply because their judgment was rational. I don't understand why different rules should apply simply because prisons are involved. So he goes on to say, well, the prison administrator's business is to maintain order. They are not punished uh, in a situation where they needlessly repress free speech. He writes, indeed, neither the public nor the warden would have any way of knowing when repression was unnecessary. Consequently, prison officials inevitably will err on the side of too little freedom. For the record, by the way, I was reading that. I did not memorize that. I don't want false credit. Um, I guess my other <clears throat> question is around the idea that racial animus can be a basis for censoring a book and also that there's clean, there, there seem to be such disparate outcomes and biases related to, to race feeding into the censorship decisions that you guys were talking about. And I guess, could you just position this, this issue within a broader understanding of, sort of racial injustice within the criminal system? This is the sticky part. Mm. No, yeah, it's, By it, the way, this is the sticky part because no one... We can't even talk about racial injustice easily outside of the context of the very fraught prison industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it highlights some of the issues um, specifically. Uh, our writers in prison are constantly facing the challenge of what they're allowed to say and not say. Um, reportage of the style that you're doing here is charged with all the power dynamics that exist. And that includes race, 
sexual preference, gender, and so on. It goes down the line. So I think maybe the question of race is too small. It's in every way that power is aligned. Information has power. So if, for example, last September, um, across the country, a series of prison strikes occurred. It was denied by nearly every state's prison system where the strikes were actually happening, including states that we we talk to all the time. Um, And the simultaneous denial of what was happening inside the facility with the combination of the reports from family members, loved ones, and whatever media was alerted on the outside to what was happening inside the facility represented this really interesting dynamic. And because the predominant number of people incarcerated in the country are, are predominantly black and brown peoples or people of color, um, it becomes a race issue um, in, in that sense. But it's really, a, it's really much more multifaceted. The, the, the categories of people who can get locked up goes broader than race now at this point. Um, and pretty much anything that would go counter to the status quo, as James identified in an early quote, the status quo is much larger than just race. Um, indentured servitude exists, coexisted with slavery. Um, and the provisions in the 13th Amendment, which still exist, <laughs> uh, they don't mention anything about race. Mm. Um, so I think it's broader. So I'm hearing, if I'm picking up what you're putting down correctly, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot about like, information is power mm. and that folks who are incarcerated on, for, for many different reasons are some of the least empowered or... The systems in which they operate are trying very hard to disempower those folks, and this is one way to do it. Is that kind of? I'm the lay person, so I can speak to like broad, like every man statements like that, right? Yeah. The information is power, because James would be a lot more specific. I think. <laughs> no, I agree <laughs> that information is no, no, power. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just trying to understand sort of how this fits um, into a larger like political context. Yeah. Um. I almost want to like interview you now mm. to like ask ask. Um, well, what, what, I, I might not answer, but I think your question might be illustrative. Illustrative, yeah. I'm wondering because you work as a lawyer. I don't mm-hmm. know if you want to put that out. Outed, there. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, if you ever requested a piece of information that was not given to you, yes, yeah, and. That piece of information, which contains a bit of the narrative, would have opened a wide realm of opportunity. Or, as a lawyer, and I don't know a lot about law, but I know a lot of people who have written themselves out of prison. Some people wrongfully convicted, some people wrongfully sentenced, sentenced illegally, or forced to take pleas illegally, um, spending lengthy sentences, who, by the simple act of researching other cases and case law, the simple act of access to case law wrote themselves out of prison. That is a gigantic blow to the status quo. 
we've talked a lot about the value of people being able to access information from inside, but I know that you do a lot of work also about amplifying people's voices from inside. So can you talk to me a little bit about the prison writing program? Yes, the prison writing program uh, was founded in 1971 in the wake of the Attica riots. Uh, the primary mechanism whereby people hear about the prison writing program is through our free handbook for writers in prison. Uh, we distribute about uh, 500 copies a month to prisoners all over the country, um, free of charge. The book is a primer on uh, fiction, nonfiction, prose, and uh, drama, and so writers will submit their work via mail, often having to scrounge up the money for stamps to send it to us. And we read and receive and respond to all the letters we receive from prison. And I tell our intern staff that this is a sort of sacred act. It's not... It takes a lot of courage from the side of the, the prisoner to send their heart out on a piece of paper to a world that's rejected them and is punishing them. Um, and often in the writing we'll see themes of, you know, heartbreak, loss, redemption, addiction, wistfulness, the things they miss. Um, you'll see heartbreaking philosophical treatises, moral treatises, great fiction, stunning poetry, um, even drama pieces like those we put on um, at an event as part of the Brooklyn Book Festival last September. So these submissions get uh, judged by our panel of committee members, um, some who have been judging for decades uh, with the program, and the winners receive a modest cash um, honorarium, and we publish their work online and in print anthology. We share them in, in local uh, book events and readings, uh, and our goal is to simply let the voices kind of speak for themselves in the most authentic way possible, like without, this is a prison reading by a prison writer, and those are in air quotes, which you can't see, of course. Um, but more that these are writers, people, um, who share the same thoughts and feelings and are writers in every legitimate sense as um, any writer out here. Um, in the real world, the free world. So let's go back to there is a takeaway. As mentioned, I think the prevailing way that we have discussed this issue for years, if not decades, is looking at a prison's restrictions on prisoners' access to literature or other reading materials and deciding whether it goes too far. Those who believe that this is an important issue, those who are um, concerned about um, reform of the prison industrial system or those who are, see themselves as free expression advocates and who are horrified at the concept of book banning existing in the United States. I think we need to increasingly and affirmatively articulate a positive vision for the right to read in America's prisons. And that means talking about the ways that we can get more literature, not less, into the hands of prisoners. It means looking at the programs that are already in place in institutions across the country where people come in and, and teach writing programs or, or do reading programs um, and seeing how we can advance that. It means looking at the state of our prison libraries um, and looking at the resources available to them. 
but that's uh, an affirmative vision that we need to be advancing and articulating as a way to eventually get to the point where we don't have to worry about um, these types of arbitrary and irrational restrictions on a systemic level. Uh, if I may, I'd like to end with a quote from Thurgood Marshall. This was, I believe, his concurrence in the 1974 case Procuner versus Martinez. He writes that the First Amendment serves not only the needs of the polity, but also those of the human spirit, a spirit that demands self-expression. When the prison gates slam behind an inmate, he does not lose his human quality. His mind does not become closed to ideas. His intellect does not cease to feed on a free and open interchange of opinions. His yearnings for self-respect does not end, nor is his quest for self-realization concluded. If anything, the needs for identity and self-respect are more compelling in the dehumanizing prison environment. And that was Thurgood Marshall, and that, I think, is a guiding star for what an articulation of the right to read in American prisons look like. And I think the moral imperative for us to articulate that vision it becomes more and more pressing every day. Great. I think that's a great place to end. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. It helps people get to the podcast, which helps spread these ideas. Thanks to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music, and thanks to the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for their help in producing. <laughs>